Welcome to Tell Me More Live, the recorded version of our live storytelling night at the Push Comedy Theater in Norfolk, Virginia. In this recording, Evan Brummel shares how one person can truly make a difference. So uh, I knocked on the door, and an 11-year-old boy answered it with his shirt off. And I thought, this is not going to end well for me. <laughs> Let me back up a little bit here. I am a CASA, or Court Appointed Special Advocate. What we do is we're volunteers, we go through training, we are background checked, and the courts appoint us for children who are in the system for one reason or another. Usually they're in foster care. One of the requirements of our CASA is that they want you to give at least one year. But I kept putting it off, putting it off, never knowing where I was going to be in a year. Finally one time I said, you know what, let me just go ahead and do it. Let me bite the bullet and sign up. If something happens in that year, I'll deal with it then. That was in October of 2007, and I'm still at CASA. I, this case that I'm going to be talking about is the case of Peter. That's obviously not his real name for privacy issues, but meeting him at the door, that was actually my second time seeing him. Peter's case was in-depth. He was taken from his biological mother's home and placed with relatives. And then he was placed back with his mother after a short period of time. And this is when I came into the case. He ended up actually being removed from his mom a second time and placed in foster care. About a month and a half after he was placed in foster care, his mom unexpectedly passed away. I was at work when I got the phone call, and I didn't know how to react. Again, this was my second case, actually, and I didn't know what to do. I just knew that I should be there when he finds out. So I was. It was myself, the social worker who was on the case, and the foster parents who was currently living with. Seeing an 11-year-old boy find out his mom died is not something I ever want to experience again or didn't want to experience the first time around. The look of confusion actually on his face, like, I don't know what you're telling me, followed by the acceptance and the stages of grief, played out right there in the bedroom. As a CASA, you are limited in what you can do. You're not supposed to physically touch the child, of course. It's very similar to schools and stuff like that in that sense. You also can't transport them anywhere. That's actually a liability issue. If I'm, in a, if I'm driving him in an accident, it's an insurance thing. So I couldn't comfort him and say, it's going to be okay. Thankfully, his foster parents were there, and they did that for him. But it's still one of those things that, what do you do? You sit there, and you just talk as much as you can when you find out your mom died to a child. I, um, about a month afterwards, that foster family decided they couldn't handle him because of his behavioral issues, and he was removed from their home and placed in another foster home. At this point, I'm going to kind of bullet point his placements. Um, he was placed in another foster home, was there for a while, and then was removed from that because of behavioral issues. Placed in another home, removed, placed, removed, placed, removed, placed, removed. All told, over about four years, 12, place, 12 to 15 placements, and to say that this child had trust issues and abandonment issues is to put it lightly. Acosta, one reason that Acosta is asked to commit at least a year is to be the constant in a child's life. We went through a total of about four or five social workers, 12 placements, three or four therapists. 
But I'm thankful to say it was only one cost of myself. It was an experience for both of us. We started our relationship off, him answering the door, the second visit in just this. And it slowly built up to one of trust and respect, which is kind of hard for having a little child respect you, but also you, you watch him grow up. Because again, four years, this went on. He had what I refer to as meltdowns, and those were all usually the behavioral issues. Um, again, I couldn't transport him anywhere, so we would meet at functions that he was at or at the house that he was currently living in, and we tried to build a relationship, or rather I tried to build a relationship with him through whatever interests he had that I could share with him. One of those interests was Halo. Um, his mom let him play. Grand Halo's a mature game, 17 plus. He was 11, but he still played it, and it was something his mom had let him do because she was a very uh, hands-off approach parent. Playing on Xbox Live over the internet so we could talk when I'm not there with him, but we could just continue the relationship and having an 11-year-old boy follow you around on maps with a sword going <laughs> doing his best Jason impression, obviously I'm not that great at it, <laughs> was, 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 it was uh, interesting, actually. But then he would have these meltdowns where we would actually be in, physically in person together. He was at a bowling alley one time, and he started having gutter balls, not making the spare, other bowling terms that I don't know. And he would get angry at himself and start hitting himself in the face, pulling at his hair, saying he was a failure. He was dis dishonoring his mother's memory because that was something the two of them shared was the love of bowling. And again, can't touch him. Had to try and talk him down. We did. We talked, talked him down, got him to calm down, not dishonor her memory. She loved you very much. You're just having an off game. Another time was I was actually hanging out with some friends. Uh, I live in Newport News, and at this time he was living in Virginia Beach. I was actually finishing with some friends, and I was, you know, having a ball, and got a call from the foster mom at the time. He's having a meltdown. Can you come over? Now she thought I was in Newport News. Thankfully, I was only 10 minutes away. Actually, I said I'm on my way. Got over there and. This was one time where I actually had to break the rule. Because he was endangering himself, I actually had to restrain Peter. Grab him, hold him, stop him from hitting himself and from hurting others. Thankfully, I didn't get in trouble for that. It was the right thing to do. We didn't have to call the cops or anything. But this was an ongoing thing that he would have these instances of being out of control and instances of being a great young man. We built our relationship up also through shared interest of books, playing chess, going for walks, love of animals, things of that nature. All these placements, though, kept slowly draining him, and I kept hoping that one of these placements would say, we want to keep him, we want to adopt him. And that's the anticipation that I was having. Peter's anticipation, on the other hand, was revealed during one time during court, where the judge asks him, what do, you, what do you want to be? What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Because he was having behavioral issues at school. Peter's response was, I don't know. Well, 
come on, let's think about it. You're, you're, you're starting high school soon. Do you have an idea? I don't know. Okay, well, w- where do you see yourself in a few years? I don't know, probably homeless. Nobody wants me. And I, at that point, was no longer, I, I had blamed other people for not wanting to take him in and giving up on him too soon, but I also blamed myself. I felt I had failed as his casa, as his advocate. When it comes to the advocacy, what we're supposed to be advocating for is what's in the child's best interests first, or sorry, their needs first, making sure they have food, water, schooling, clothing, all that sort of stuff. What is in their best interests, which may be returning home, which may be staying in a foster placement if a parent hasn't quite gotten their act together, and then their wants, which may be, I want a home, I want somebody to love me, I want an Xbox One, some of those things they may get, some of them they might not. I'm a volunteer, my salary is very little. Um, but I wanted him to have that permanency because no child should not know where they're going to end up or have a future where they're expecting themselves to be homeless. So I started going through all the notes I had on the case. Now, every time we have court, I have to submit a report, which is supposed to be three to five pages. My supervisors hated my reports because so much was going on in the courts in the case, and I could stay up here for hours and talk, and I'm not going to, but my reports would be between 20 and 80 pages long. <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating on that, and that was edited by me. Um, but I found a note that there was a cousin who had one time expressed interest in taking him. And we ended up... I, I tracked the, the contact information for this cousin down, but you don't start out the conversation with, hey, you want to adopt a 14-year-old? It was, hi, are you so-and-so's second cousin once removed? Maybe. Well, are you familiar with Peter? Yeah, a little bit. Actually, I haven't heard from him in a few years. Well, he would love to get a birthday card. Okay. Now, me, personally, I wasn't asking just for a birthday card. I just wanted to build this relationship in the hopes that we would find him this permanency because I did not anticipate being a casa for him for four years. But it had been going on, and I I could see that if we don't find him a permanent home, that he's going to continue on and just age out of the system, and who knows what happens. So the birthday card turned into letters, phone calls, emails, and finally a visit. And after the visit, he asked, will they adopt me? And I asked them, and they said yes. And about a month afterwards, he was supposed to move out there, but somebody, I'm not sure who, what might have been the foster family at the time, might have been the social worker, not sure who, but was poisoning his idea about this, that these people weren't as good as they seemed to be. And it took every ounce of trust that him and I had built up over the years to get him to board the plane because they weren't local. They lived out west, like other Oceanside. And he said, I don't want to do it. But I said, you need to trust me on this, just this one last time. 
If it doesn't work out in six months, I'll come out there and I'll make sure you get back here. He did. He said, I'll put in my time. That's a direct quote, actually. And I'm, again, I'm pretty sure he got that from whoever was poisoning his idea about the move. So he went out there, and the last picture of him here in Virginia, he's so sullen looking and angry and looking down, hands in his pocket, this face of just, I don't like this. I want to stay here and do nothing with my life, just drift. Two months afterwards, he was adopted. He loved it out there. He had a dog. He had a, 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 a mom and a dad, brothers and sisters. And it was just the best thing for him. And I went out there to visit him, made sure he knew that I hadn't abandoned him. Unfortunately, when I got out there, all the positive changes I had seen posting on Facebook throughout the months, I saw disappearing the longer I stayed, hung around him there. I was only there for a couple days. And the only common factor would be me. I was a memory of a bad time in his life. So I talked to the adoptive parents who I can't say enough positive things about these two folks. I wish I could talk for hours about them. But I said, it's me, and I'm being not a negative influence, but I'm making him revert. And they didn't say anything. They didn't disagree with me. But I knew that they were thinking that also because he had made so much progress and I was one who brought them together, but it wasn't working out. So I said, look, I'm going to back off. I'm here if you need me. Just call me or message me or something. So I would like post on Facebook throughout the years. This is 2012. I know it's from 2008 to late 2012. But it just kept going on and he lived his life I lived mine. And then about two months ago, I got a message asking, would I like to come out for his graduation? Peter would like me to come out. The answer was yes, of course. So I cashed in all my Sky Miles, got a plane ticket, went out there, got a rental car, went to one of where his graduation function was going to be, which is at a church, actually. And I pulled into the parking lot, and if I hadn't seen pictures of him over the last couple of years, I wouldn't have recognized him. He went from this sullen, pudgy uh, teenager to this tall young man who was so happy. So I parked, and I see him going across with a new girlfriend and a friend. And I let them go by, and I get out of the car, and I stand up, and I yell, Peter Riley. And he looks around. All he sees is this white guy he hasn't seen in like three years. And it took about two seconds for the confusion to drop off of his face. And he ran over to me. And I'm pretty sure he jumped over a bush, actually. I don't know if the... <laughs> but he gave me the biggest bear hug that I've ever received. And he started crying. And I won't lie. I might have had a manly man. Oh, some, might have had some onions in my pocket too. Uh, actually, rehearsing this, I was having a few onions, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but I knew it was uh, it, it, it was a it was the right thing. I mean, I miss him. I love him. Proud of him so much. And he starts college tomorrow, and I couldn't be prouder of him. <laughs>
That was Evan Drummle sharing his experience as a court-appointed special advocate. If you're interested in the program, visit tellmemorelive.org forward slash CASA. That's tellmemorelive.org forward slash C-A-S-A. While you're on the site, take a look around. You'll find more Storyteller podcasts and a schedule of upcoming shows. I'm Deb Markham. Thanks for listening to Tell Me More Live.